Endless Wars with Sergeant Dan McKnight of Bring Our Troops Home. Right here, right now, on VT Radio. Let's go. With host Johnny Punish. Hi, Dan. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Let's get right into it. What's your first take on the Ukraine war and U.S. administration policy with Russia and NATO? Sure. Look, at first, you know, nobody here thinks that what Russia is doing is proper. Um, but we're also not so naive to think that the uh, United States has, didn't cause this problem. Uh, we believe that uh, Bill Burns had it right when he, in 1990, he said that NATO is a bright red line that we shouldn't cross. And any expansion of NATO to the east is a direct threat to Russia's national security. This is the same Bill Burns, who's now the director of the CIA. And uh, we feel that uh, U.S. involvement in, in Ukraine should be done through diplomacy and not through sending arms and training the, new, the militants in the Middle East that are now fighting against Ukrainians. Gotcha. Now, what would you like to see as U.S. policy with Ukraine and Russia moving forward? Would you, what would you like to see? Sure. Uh, we believe in being friends to all and military allies only to those that have nas- direct national security threat interest to the United States. Um, if we are to go fight a war somewhere in the world, we believe that the American interests are worth defending, and that's what our military is for. But if we're going to go to Ukraine or to any other NATO country to defend them, then Congress must first take this issue up, and they must declare war. They must vote on it and debate on it, and then go home to their constituents and sell the war to their constituents. Uh, we should never allow one single man or woman in the executive branch to take us from a state of peace into a state of war. Gotcha. Now, what political movements do you see in the USA that can help us get out of this endless war situation? You know, that's a great question. Since 19, uh, I believe it was 1940, I think it was the last time, 41 was the last time the United States actually declared war when we went uh, into World War II against Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. And since that time, we've seen nothing but endless and undeclared wars, runaway wars in Korea and Vietnam. Uh, Desert Storm was a blip on the radar, but it took us right into um, uh, Afghanistan and global, or, uh, Gulf War II, three and four, took us into Syria, took us into Libya. It's taken us all across the African continent. And the primary reason is because Congress has willfully castrated themselves and given away their authority, their enumerated power that we've given them in the Constitution to declare war. And uh, in order for us to get away from that, to get the military-industrial complex influence out of Washington, D.C., it's going to take a few bold leaders in Congress, a few p- principled people that understand their authority to stand up and say enough is enough. It happened in World War I with Idaho Senator William Bora. It happened at the end of Vietnam with another Idaho Senator, Frank Church. It's happening now with a couple of real principled people in Congress, like Rand Paul, who have just simply said that we're not to go to war without congressional declaration. And you've seen people like Tulsi Gabbard leave the Democratic Party that used to be so good on anti-war. And now they've just become liberal hawks. They're all about war now because it's their, their team that's in power. And we're watching the military-industrial complex stifle and silence the progressive caucus who came out and, caused, and called for a pause in Ukraine. And then the next day they reversed their position because somebody of influence got to them and told them to keep their mouth shut and get back in line. We just want American veterans who are paying the price in blood and American citizens who are paying the price in treasure to put the influence on Congress where it belongs and never allow a single person to take us into war again. It's incredible. Absolutely. Now, in the USA, we have an issue with the defense industry lobby. 
how can you and your organization affect change in the lobbies that push the congress into endless wars to sell those wares? you know this is a serious issue outlined by president eisenhower back in sixty one when he left office and warned us about the military industrial complex how are we supposed to do that you know there was a there's a great pamphlet that was written by one of my heroes general smedley butler and he says war is a racket and he talked about things like the price of toilet seats and hammers and shoes and boots there is so much money to be made in war and it's so good for the economy that oftentimes uh, politicians will do what's best for the pocketbook of their citizens and not what's best for the liberty of the country. And to get the, the, the military industrial complex, their influence out of Washington DC, it's going to take a massive effort. And one thing people don't really know, you look at our current Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, he was a board member for Raytheon, one of the biggest defense contractors in the world. He sat on their board and now he's directly responsible for contracts that are being awarded to Raytheon sitting at, as Secretary of Defense. And Lloyd Austin is more interested in pushing you know, social, social culture and social engineering than he is about restoring liberty and the proper role of government. And so the only way this is gonna happen is we have to stand up as United citizens. And those of us that have had skin in the game, the veterans that have bled and died, we're the ones that are gonna have to stand up and say enough is enough. And we're not talking about the post-Vietnam era, hate Ashbury, San Francisco, you know, born on the 4th of July hippie movement. That movement was great. They were right on everything they said, but their message was so, um, it was shouted and it was so ignored by the mainstream. But now conservative veterans like myself and our organization bring our troops home. We're right of center. We would call ourselves conservative Americans or America first uh, Americans. We're the ones that are taking up this charge now and finally saying after 60, 70, 80 years of undeclared war, and going back to the Middle East five, six, or seven times in a career, enough is enough. And it's gonna take gentlemen and, and women in and, and uniform to stand up and say that enough. We've got skin in the game, and we're not gonna to listen to people like Dan Crenshaw, or Lindsey Graham, or Hillary Clinton, or any of those other warmongers that just beat the, wars, the drums of war um, because it supports and, and, and uh, strengthens their allies in the military industrial complex. It's going to take a massive movement. Speaking of the Middle East, we've been there since World War I, since Sykes-Picot Agreement created the modern Middle East, which, in my opinion, has been an abysmal failure. We're talking about three or four hundred million people not living in freedom, but living in states created by the English and French, basically to control the flow, uh, flow of oil, uh, which helped fuel our industrial revolution. So we've got to recognize that fact. But in my opinion, this 20th century construct has become antiquated. We need something better. I've come up with some ideas that I think can work. Let me run them by you to see what you think. But first, let me explain. I spent about three months in the EU last year. It was wonderful. Uh, but I was there 30 years ago, too. I mean, in those days, you could not travel to other states so easily. It was difficult. Money was different. Uh, I think I had a million lira for a dollar or something. But anyway, now you can travel anywhere within the union, save money, super easy, go anywhere you want. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect, but in the Middle East, would you consider sponsoring a Middle East union similar to the EU that includes Israel, Saudi, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, etc.? cetera? Uh, you know, where they can have freedom for themselves, freedom of religion, freedom to travel. I'm not saying it's easy, I understand the complexity of it, but something where we can plant a seed for them, saying maybe we should not just be there for oil. 
Sure. And, uh, you know, people talk about how impossible that is that we will, you know, see a man on Mars before we ever see peace in the Middle East. But I want to back up just a couple of years and, re- and, and remember how close we came to this, the Abraham Accords that we signed. You know, and as much as people don't really care for Trump, and that's fine, or Jared Kushner, or the job that they did, but they went to the Middle East, and they struck a deal with Israel and seven other nations of various Arab descent, and they came up with a peace accord that was the framework for just what you're talking about. Do I think the United States should be the sponsors of a, of a, of a union in the Middle East? Absolutely not. I think we should help broker the deal, and we should remove ourselves from the equation and stop making the enemies of the West. And uh, if we were to leave those countries and quit fighting the wars of our supposed allies like the Saudis, um, we would see, I think, uh, the, the anti-West sediment really toned down in the Middle East. And if they were to come up with an accord or a union of their own, I think that would be strong. I think most of the world would understand it. And I think if it was something based more secular than even the OPEC uh, agreement, something that, was, that, that recognized the differences of religion and recognized the boundaries and recognized the historical culture of the Middle East. That would be something for, to last for a lifetime. And uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't broker it. We shouldn't force it. We shouldn't engineer it. We shouldn't even influence. We should just get out of the way and let it happen through the natural means because I promise you, there aren't many people in the world that truly want to be at war, um, especially endless wars like they have been for generations in the Middle East. I think that given a, a, a natural um, free path to, to finding peace, it'll be found. And uh, we're the biggest obstruction to that because we're literally creating the same insurgents that we're fighting tomorrow. We created them today or yesterday. So when I was a little kid in the 1970s, we had a visit from a friend named Samir, who was from Saudi Arabia. He was visiting my mom. I was about 13 and he was in the oil business. So I asked him, who controls the world? How does the world work? It was kind of a naive question, but he handed me a book called The Seven Sisters. And I said, what's this? A book about sisters? I don't know what that is. But I read the complicated book um, and I read it. It opened my mind to how oil has controlled our modern world. And it was it was really interesting. What is your position to get off this oil? Because along with arms sales, which is primarily the reason why we're there, uh, and of course, controlling the oil. Um, What do we have to do? Are you an EV guy, a hydrogen guy? What is the U.S. supposed to do to completely get off this oil so we don't put pressure on the peoples of the Middle East? What's your take? I I come from a fairly, uh, I I wouldn't say I'm religious, but I'm I'm quite spiritual. I think that our land was blessed. I think we are blessed with some of the best natural resources in the world, but even more importantly, we're blessed with some of the best minds in the world. And I think we truly have the ability to get off of uh, the, our dependence on, on oil from the Middle East or Central or South America. And in the short term, I think that means using American resources, including our own oil reserves and our offshore drilling. But for a long-term uh, assessment, we've got to recognize that, that hydrogen power is clean, it's efficient, it just needs to be probably strengthened and safened up a little bit. And electric power, while there are problems with it, I think that is a giant step uh, forward. Um, you know, we're, we're big fans here at home, uh, we, you know, the, the Plaid, uh, the Tesla Plaid is sure a beautiful car and uh, it, the performance is incredible. Uh, we've got to figure out a way to better produce the batteries and make it more efficient uh, from a, an environmental standpoint. Um, the use of the electricity to charge those things is not nearly as green as everybody thinks it is, um, but definitely getting off of Middle East oil would help 
to uh, solidify that region, to decrease our dependency and our interest in the region. And we have the resources here at home to do it. Now let's go back to the defense industry, because if we reduce our arms around the world, we will have to reconcile the loss of those defense jobs. Now that's a lot of people losing jobs. It's gonna affect us all. So what's your take? What do we do? Look, I've never believed that the military or any of the supporting industries for the military are, should even be disguised or confused as a jobs program. Um, again, we are the greatest nation on earth with the most resources. We will find a way to employ anybody that wants to be gainfully employed. Now, having said that, I also believe in, in the Reagan policy of peace through strength. I believe that we should have a robust defense uh, here at home. And a robust defense includes building weapons of defense for our nation. Um, I, I, I'm a firm believer that the National Guard's uh, units of each of the 50 states should be the primary defense force for the, for the entire country. That each state should have a robust National Guard that is trained and, and funded and equipped by a strong federal government, but controlled by the states. That's the way the Constitution wrote it. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, the Militia Clause. And I believe that we could still have the same standing military decentralized from the federal government to the states. And I think that would still support all the jobs. It may not support the overseas weapon sales, but you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not supporting nations that, that we support today and then having to fight against those same weapons tomorrow. We're seeing the same um, uh, Mujahideen that we trained and equipped in the 80s, 90s, and all through the 2000s. We're seeing them now fight in Ukraine against us with the same weapons, getting paid $1,500 a month per head from, uh, from Moscow. We're seeing the same weapons that we gave them shooting back at our uh, supposed allies. It's not the way this is supposed to work. And so if we took our weapons off the world stage and kept them at home, I think it'd be better for all of us. Gotcha. The next question I have is, how do we balance the rise of China and Asia against the United States not being involved in the Middle East and having these endless wars? How do you see it? You know, we're watching the, the rise of, of an empire in China right now, and they're spreading across the globe at an alarming pace. They're all across the, the continent of Africa. They're raiding and plundering and pillaging that continent of its natural resources. And uh, to, to balance that, we have sent our special forces and our military into Africa, into 17 or 18 or 19 countries. We don't know the true number because the Department of Defense quit responding and quit re uh, reporting. But I don't know that our military's job is to go into other nations and other continents to defend economic interests. I think that is more of a, uh, of a policy and a purpose of the State Department to be done through diplomacy. And, and we, if we make free trade partners all across the world, I think America becomes a better trade partner than China in any situation. And uh, the fact that Chinese, the, the Chinese have their people all across the Africa building that highway up and down the east side of Africa is terrifying on a world stage, but it's not our job of the military to, to fight the insurgents in Africa to make sure that doesn't happen because I see it doing just the opposite. Before we get going, I wanna talk about debt. I mean, you mentioned debt on your website, of course, and that's website is bringourtroopshome.net, right? Bringourtroopshome.us. Oh, .us, excuse me, I got it, okay. I just wanna make sure we got that correct. Okay, uh, the debt is happening because of why? Wars, COVID, what is causing the massive debt? And what can we do about the Dems and Republicans both seem to be causing more and more debt? Help me out here.
Yeah, they both sides of the same coin, right? The left and the right. Uh, you know, the the war hawks on the on the right and the liberal hawks on the left. They're no they're no better. I'm not a fiscal policy expert, but I do know this: if I don't have the money in my checking account or my savings account, I can't spend it. And I think our nation should live by that principle. I know that we attempted to pass a balanced budget amendment a few years ago, and it was struck down and it was defeated by members of both parties. Um, fiscal responsibility in my mind, is the same issue as liberty, right? There are certain powers that the federal government has. They're clearly identified in the Constitution. And the fact that we've allowed those powers to expand and that the administrative state is in a runaway um, shape right now, um, it, it talks more about us as citizens than it does about our government. Government will always grow. It will always be corrupt. It will always go as far as the citizens allow it to go because their power comes from us. So once the citizens wake up and demand true change, uh, that change will happen. But the debt is, it's alarming, it's terrifying. Uh, I believe in sound fiscal policy. I believe in, in a gold standard. Um, I just don't see that happening anytime soon as long as we've got career bureaucrats and career administrative state uh, bureaucrats in, in Washington, D.C. I agree with that. You know, question for you on Congress. You know, we got people in there for 30 to 40 years. Uh, do you agree that uh, we should have term limits or something where they go and do their duty for the country as opposed to making it a freaking career. Help me out on this one. Sure, no, 100%. Look, we, we have term limits every two years on November, first Tuesday, November. And again, we be, we're such a, a lazy and sleepy society when it comes to the things in Washington, D.C. Um, we do a lot of campaigning in the states, uh, state legislatures and, and work educating uh, voters on, on policies that are important to us. And it's alarming how many people don't know who their state representative is or who their congressman is or who their senator is or even what congressional district they live in. So we, we have term limits um, every every November. Um, as far as mandated term limits, I think it's a great idea. What I don't support, though, is, is calling a convention of states to pass an amendment through that mechanism to force term limits in our current state. I know that the, the convention of states is an idea that's, that's written into our constitution. I just think because of the way our society is so asleep at the wheel right now, that sending a convention of states to amend the Constitution could result in some other loss of liberty or freedom that we're not quite aware of, and it might come so behind the scenes and, and, and through a backhanded move that we wouldn't even see it coming. And so I, I'm, I, I agree with term limits. I disagree with the process that they're trying to do to, 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 to bring it uh, to pass. Gotcha. Okay, before you go, I, I want to hear about Defend the Guard. I know. That's the thing uh, your organization is talking about right now. If you can explain to our viewers and listeners. Absolutely, so the National Guard uh, makes up about 450,000 members, um, about almost half of the active military force. The National Guard um, was created, um, you know, is, is empowered by the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, and they have a, a threefold mission, to enforce the laws of the Union, to repel an invasion, and to put down an insurrection. Fighting overseas undeclared wars is not part of the National Guard's mission, and they've made up about half of the deployments in the global war on terror, and they've made up about 18% of the casualties in that war. These are National Guardsmen, these are police officers, these are business owners, teachers, garbage men, mechanics that live in our community that are going back to war over and over and over again, some as many as eight, nine, or 10 times since the, the war began in 2001. And the Defend the Guard bill is just a realignment of the state's rights. It's a 10th Amendment bill that says that the National Guard shall not be deployed to an overseas war and released into federal power unless Congress has first done their job and declared war. 
because that declaration of war then becomes the law of the union and gives the National Guard the authority to be activated into federal service. And we've uh, introduced the bill about four years ago, the first time in West Virginia. And uh, we're now in almost 40 states uh, with the bill being proposed. And this year we're hoping to hit all 50 states and maybe get it passed in probably three or four um, um, houses uh, or senates in, across the country. So we're making progress. Uh, DefendTheGuard.us is a website where you can go to track the progress or look for the sponsor of the bill in your state. And uh, it's something we're very excited about and we're working very hard all across the country on it. And does your organization accept donations? Are you a 501c3? Explain it so we can educate our viewers and listeners on how best to support your organization. Absolutely, that's a great question. So we have we have a couple ways. DefendTheGuard.us, you can you can click the donate button there. We are we are a nonprofit. Every penny that's that's brought in is used to further the effort of the Defend the Guard to do education in, in elections, uh, to let voters know where their elected leaders or candidates stand on the issue. And uh, every penny is spent very wisely. We're a very small organization with a large membership. Um, if you want to become a regular supporter, we do have a club called the 10-7 Club. That's T-E-N-S-E-V-E-N club.com. 10-7, that's October 7th. That was the day that American boots first hit the ground in Afghanistan. And we created this club, this kind of an insider's group to never forget that date, the date that we went to war for 21 years unconstitutionally without a declaration. And if you join that up for, uh, join that club for as much as, as little as $10 a month, you'll be entered into drawings that we have. We give away firearms and defense equipment and all kinds of stuff that veterans get excited about uh, fairly regularly. And we send out regular insider newsletters. So again, that's 107club.com, defendtheguard.us, or bringourtroopshome.us are the three sources of information. And each one is for a, a specific purpose. Perfect. On that note, Dan, speaking as the head of a military family myself and on behalf of my son-in-law who is currently serving on a Navy ship, I thank you for taking the time to speak with us and speaking out, doing something for awesome for our great country. I, I really appreciate it and just want to say super thanks. You bet, Johnny. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this presentation, hit the like button now. Also, share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. VT approves this message.